You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it is great to see you this morning. I hope you are doing well, and let's just start it off. Today is Father's Day, so as you're turning to Exodus chapter 20 and Ephesians 4, you might get your thumb in both of those two places. As you're turning there, let's begin just by honoring our fathers. So if you are a father in the room, why don't you stand up for us just for a moment and hold your applause just for a second. Go ahead and stand up for all of our fathers in the room. Just hang right there for just, just a moment here. And uh, I, I want to talk to all of our fathers just for a second. You know, when, when I think about the hopes we have for Stonegate Church and our church family, so much of that is tied in to our fathers, um, to our fathers growing from, from being boys at some point in their life, to being adolescents, to being men, and then into becoming godly men. And we pray that for you and hope that for you and are asking God to grow us into to that sort of a thing. Fathers who would take responsibility for their families. Fathers who would recognize the unique voice that God has given you in your family. That you have a voice in the life of your wife and your kids that is irreplaceable. Irreplaceable. And that you would be good stewards of that. That, that you would be a great representation and a great model for your family and what it means to love Jesus and to live for Jesus. We're praying that for you. And, and lastly, just to encourage you in that, that doesn't mean that you have to be a perfect man. It means that all of us need to be repenting men. Quick to confess our sin, quick to turn from our sin and to turn back to Jesus for the first or the 100th time or the 10,000th time that we would be those sort of men. So I want you to know, men, that we're praying for that, for God to be maturing that in us and growing that in us for, for you. We're, we're praying that for you. So in light of that now, why don't we celebrate our fathers in the room? You can go ahead and have a seat there where you are. And I know that for some, this is also a very difficult day um, because you're not celebrating uh, maybe a, a, a father that stepped into that sort of biblical role in your life. So maybe it's the absence of a father or just not a good daddy in your life. Or maybe it's like my wife, Laura, who lost her dad when she was very young. And so I know that a day like today has a tendency to be hard for many people in a room like this. And so in light of that, I want to just spend a moment encouraging you. The great news of Jesus is that regardless of how poor our father was or just the absence of a good dad in our life, regardless of that, the good news of Jesus is God can redeem that for you. I love how J.R. Packer defined a Christian. J.R. Packer is one of the, the best theologians of the last century. And he, he's answering the question of, of what is a Christian? And this is how he responds to that question is, what is a Christian? He says, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. Isn't that great news for us? Especially those who a day like this, or a day like today is painful. That the good news of Jesus is that in Jesus, we have a father in God who is perfect, who can redeem all the lack of fathering we have had in our life. And so for those who today is just difficult in those sort of ways, man, this is a great day that you can celebrate that regardless of what you have missed in your life, you have something that is irreplaceable and that can redeem everything that you've missed, namely God as Father, if you've believed in Jesus. Amen? Okay. Um, Exodus chapter 20. We have been in the middle of a set of sermons on the Ten Commandments, and we have found um, ourselves today in the Eighth Commandment. Eighth Commandment. 
Um, Exodus 20, verse 15, four simple words. And it's interesting, just as you read the Ten Commandments, they start out very long, each commandment, and they start kind of condensing when you get into the back half of them. And we are to just another one of those very short, simple, four words make up the Eighth Commandment. Exodus 20, verse 15, very simple, four words. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. Exodus 20, verse 15. Now, here's what I know happens in many of us in the room when you hear that commandment. You instantly, because here's what we all do. We all have a very deep, innate sense of self-justification. And because of that deep sort of sense of self-justification, you know, that runs in all of us, we all read this commandment. And, and we do this with all the commandments, by the way, but I think this one in particular, we read this commandment and we instantly think, we've finally gotten to a commandment that's for someone else. I'm glad my husband or wife's here. I'm glad my friend's here. Man, if only my neighbor were here. If only that person I worked with were here. They're the ones that need this commandment, not me. Well, hold on on that, right? So, and, and I know that sort of deep innate justification is there. George Barna, he did a, uh, a lot of research, um, one really thorough research project a few years ago. And one of the questions he asked a lot of people was one on the Eighth Commandment. And basically it said something like this. The question was, do you think that you have lived up to the Eighth Commandment? That your life is a good representation of what the Eighth Commandment would, would you know, be describing that God would want for our life. That you shall not steal. 86% of the people he asked that question, does your life really live in this commandment? 86% of the people said yes to that. 86% said, I've nailed that one. Maybe not those commandments, but this one I have nailed. That is that deep innate self-justification working itself out in our life. And you know, what, what's, what's coming out, I think, in a survey like that is that that sort of uh, cultural thievery that we have runs so deep in us and our culture that it makes it hard to see for all of us. That's what's happening in a survey like that. That's the reason that 86% of people can say that I think when it comes to the eighth commandment, I'm, I'm nailing that one. I've checked that one off, you know, off, we can move on to the next one. And the truth is we just have a culture that's committed to thievery and it runs deep in us. Um, years ago, I was uh, listening to a guy talk and he was talking about New York City. And in New York City, they estimate that 40,000 bicycles are stolen every year. 40,000, that's a lot per day right there. 40,000 bicycles stolen every year. There's a, a website in New York City committed to helping people prevent bike theft. Now listen to their second tip on the, how, how do you prevent bike theft? Here's their second tip. Tip number two goes like this for bike theft prevention. Park near bikes that look more expensive than your own. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's how deep thievery goes in New York City and, and us culturally. That the best we can do is say, just park by something nicer than you. That's your best shot of not getting yours stolen. Every, every 26 seconds in America, a car is stolen. The National Association for Shoplifting Prevention. Did y'all know that was out there? Yeah. The National Association for Shoplifting Prevention estimates that 27 million Americans shoplift every year. Okay, now let's just bring that down to practical terms. That's one in 11 people in America. Line everyone up in this room, put us in stacks of 11. One in every one of those stacks are shoplifting this year. 
So before we just point the finger out there, we probably need to point it at us for just a second here. They estimate, this National Association for Shoplifting Prevention, estimates that $35 million a day is shoplifted. For every one person, or every 52 people that go into a retail store, one of those 52 walk out with something they didn't pay for. Okay, now I'm just trying to give, and we could go on here forever. I'm just trying to give you a sense of the cultural, kind of just giving you a sense of the cultural awareness of this. That this is a deeply ingrained culture, you know, cultural phenomenon. This idea of thievery. And maybe I could just say it this way. The eighth commandment is as relevant and as applicable right now in America as it has ever been for any people of any time. We need the grace of God that is shown in the eighth commandment that says, you shall not steal. Now, I want to look at this from a few different angles today, uh, four different angles. And let's start by trying to, um, trying to clarify what the prohibition of this command is. When the Lord says, you shall not steal, what is he prohibiting here? Now, to start on that, on this prohibition of this commandment, uh, let's just nail down what stealing is. Let's just make sure we're seeing this clearly. So here's just a working definition of stealing or thievering. It's taking something unlawfully that doesn't belong to you. Taking something unlawfully that doesn't belong to you. Now just know this about yourself. Your sense of self-justification is so strong in you right now even hearing that definition of stealing. Taking something unlawfully that doesn't belong for you. That you likely create categories to keep thievery at a safe distance from you. In other words, when you hear um, it's taking, you know, something unlawfully that doesn't belong for you, you instantly start to think about thievery and stealing in a way that leaves you unscathed and that brings other people into the picture. So to help in that, to help give a sort of rich, robust sense of what stealing could look like in our lives, let, let, let me do some work on this for you. I'm just going to run through various forms of stealing. You can write them down if you want, but I just want you to pay attention to, to how wide and robust the category of stealing is. Let me just run through some, some various ways that people steal. So not just like shoplifting and doing that, which is pretty obvious, but, but here are other ways. Tax theft. So in other words, cu cutting corners on what you owe to the government, hoping they don't find this, they don't discover that, Ta tax theft. Credit card theft, buying on credit with no intention or even ability to pay it back, C credit card theft. Borrowing theft, borrowing something from someone else and just not giving it back. Just, it, it, you lose track of it, you just forget about it, you borrow and you just don't return it. That's what the Bible calls breaking the eighth commandment. That's borrowing theft, welfare theft, living off of others unnecessarily. So that could be the government, that could be a church, that could be a group of people. And this, is all, this, is, this happens in churches all the time. This is a big problem. That, that churches have to deal with as far as how, how do you manage this whole thing and how do you work around this? When I was at a previous church, there was one day where a person part, pulled up to the exit of the parking lot to the church and acted like his car was broken down. So he's holding up a sign that says, I, I don't have gas, I need gas, um, cars broken down. Um, so at the end of church, we've got all of our people driving out and here he is, just conveniently broken down right there. I walk up to the man and say, man, can I take a look at your car and, and jump into it and see if you've got gas or not? When I say that, he instantly jumps in and drives off. Now, that's a microcosm of, you can, of the play out of that. It's all over the place. W welfare theft. Um, here's another one, employment theft or employee theft. 
And this sort of thievery is so rampant in our culture that virtually no one has eyes to see it. Most people in our culture think like this. If I show up at the job, I should get paid. No one pays anyone to show up for a job. If you've got that gig, let me know. Because I'd love to join you over there, right? That is not why people pay other people. People pay other people so, so they can add value in their job. That's why they pay, get paid, right? And so whenever we don't add value, but in, instead are becoming professional solitaire players at work, that's employee theft. Whenever we use our work time to memorize the Cowboys depth chart three deep, that's employment theft. Whenever we call in sick when we're not sick, that's employee theft. Those are all ways of not giving a full day's work. And when you don't give a full day's work to your place of employment, you are, you're stealing from them. You're, you're taking what is not yours lawfully. Um, Phil Riken, uh, Philip Riken, he wrote a book on the Ten Commandments and he goes on to say this. He, he found some work from uh, economists that said, according to some estimates, as much as one third of a product's cost goes to cover the various forms of stealing that occur on the product's way to the marketplace. Now, isn't that something? One third of what you pay for a, a product at Walmart or wherever else, one third of that is just covering the cost of stealing from the time that product was made to gets to, to Walmart. That's amazing. That's employment theft. But there's also management theft. That's taking advantage of your employees. That's exploiting your employees. It's not paying your employees what they should be getting paid. Um, one theologian of a few uh, centuries ago, he says this commenting on the Eighth Commandment. He said, it follows therefore that not only are those thieves who secretly steal the property of others, but those who also who seek gain from the loss of others, those who accumulate wealth by unlawful practices and are more devoted to their private advantage than to equity. That's management theft. Um, there's revenge theft. Now pay careful attention to this one because this one's one of those that it's like, that stings. I don't like that one. So just play out the example. And you, you can just apply this personally, whatever your life looks like. But just apply the, or think about the example of a guy who is at work and he feels like his place of employment has not paid him the $200 that they owe him. So, so he feels like they're stealing from him, that they've stolen $200 that he, that he should rightfully have. So in response to their stealing of him in his mind, here's how his self-justification works. What I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna steal $200 worth of something from that company. Do you see how that works? It's revenge theft. I feel like they've stolen from me. So to settle accounts, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to steal from them. Now, let's just, and just apply that to the various issues. Your friend, you feel like he got something from you, so you just take some, you know, you just apply it to whatever your, your life looks like. Here's the point though. That is not settling accounts. That is breaking the eighth commandment. And here's the problem with revenge theft. Our, that self-justification script runs so deep and is so loud when it comes to revenge. Well, they stole it from me though. It would be right for me to steal. No, it's not right. It's a breaking of the eighth commandment, right? That's revenge theft. Insurance theft. I've got a friend who her dad is a insurance fraud guy. Like he investigates those sort of cases. And every time I'm around him, I always ask for the latest, greatest case that he's working on. And it's like... Man, somebody should, should make a movie out of some of the stuff that you see. It is crazy how people take advantage of insurance. 
Insurance theft. Sales theft. Selling something at an unfair price. Selling something without revealing the defects that you know are there. That's all sales theft. Um, Martin Luther commenting on the, the Eighth Commandment, he says this about that. He says, we break the Eighth Commandment whenever we take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. So you sell something that you know is defective. He pays or she pays a full price for it. They have now suffered loss because of your dishonesty. That's stealing from them. That's breaking the Eighth Commandment, sales theft. Reputation theft. You, You can rob a person's reputation and good name by slander and gossip. Intellectual theft. Stealing intellectual property from other people. When I was first entering into college, it was the day of Napster. Y'all remember that? That's a blast from the past right there, right? Napster. Man, it was so everywhere. Like I remember in my little college dorm in my hallway, everyone had Napster and everyone was illegally downloading uh, music. And it was so everywhere and so common that nobody could call it a sin. Nobody could call it theft. Um, years ago, when pa- I heard a guy talking about this here recently, when Passion of the Christ came out years ago, at the time, it was the most illegally downloaded movie. <laughs> Just let the irony fall on you for a second there, right? I, I seriously doubt that was unbelievers trying to give believers a bad name. But listen, it happens all the time. I guarantee if we just kind of looked at everyone in here and could just kind of pry inside of lives, we would see illegally downloaded a lot of things, right? It's just intellectual theft though. It's calling it what it is. That is theft. That is breaking the eighth commandment. And, and maybe the most pervasive of all and the one we would not think about when we read the eighth commandment is glory theft. God created you and he created you to be an image bearer of his. In other words, he created us to live in a sort of way that would tell the truth about God that would be a good representation of the God whose image we are created in. And every time we as human beings say, God, I don't care what you want, I'm gonna do what I want. Every time we say, God, my life is not about you, my life is about me, my wants, my needs, my little happiness, my my little what I've got going here. Every time we do that, we are robbing glory from God. And that is a breaking of the eighth commandment. Now, I hope we're just getting a sense real quick here. Of all we've done is look at the prohibition so far, and I hope you're seeing there's not a one of us that is unscathed by the Eighth Commandment. There's not a one of us in, in the court of God's justice will be able to look at God and say, you know what, God, I've nailed that Eighth Commandment. 86% of people are going to have a rude awakening when they stand before God, and the perfect standard of God's righteousness, you shall not still, is applied to their life. of people are gonna realize what I once thought I could just check off, I can't check off any longer. At the end of the day, we're all guilty of thievery. Phil Reichen, he goes on in his book on the Ten Commandments to say this. The truth is that theft is pervasive at every level of American society. And like everyone else, we are in on the take. But this is not just an American problem. This Uh, The whole human race is a band of thieves and we all suffer the loss. Now he goes on to quote Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, and listen to what Martin Luther goes on to say. He says, if we look at mankind in all of its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. And just think on that for a moment. He says, if we look at mankind in all of its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. It's the smallest part of the thieves that are hung. 
If we were to hang them all, where shall we get enough rope? We must make all of our belts and straps into halters. That is us. We, we are the wide stable of great thieves. There's not a one of us that can stand before God and say, I am guilt-free in, regard, in regards to thievery. And this is the one that I've knelt in the court of God's justice. Here's the thing. We will all be buried in, in the grave of God's justice. That's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for all of us in the room. Now that's just the negative side of this command. We're not even talking yet about the positive side. So the negative side is don't steal. Don't take something that, you know, unlawfully that's not yours. Now let's go to the, the second side, the positive side. Let's clarify the command's calling in our life. Like every command has two sides, a negative don't do side and a positive now do this side. So let's get on the do this side. What is it proactively calling us toward? What is the Lord in the eighth commandment saying, now get about doing this. Yes, don't do that, but that's not the heart of the commandment. What is God actually saying? Here's the essence. Get about doing this. Move your life in this direction toward these things. What are these things? I think Ephesians chapter four, verse 28 is where that gets clarified for us. What does it look like to proactively live in the positive side of this commandment? What is the do this of this commandment? Ephesians four, verse 28. This will be on the screen for you if you need easy access. Ephesians four twenty-eight says this. Let the thief no longer steal. Okay, now this is Paul. Context is eighth commandment here. Okay, this is the background of which Paul is writing from. So he's expounding on the eighth commandment. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, do you see the contrast? Here's the contrast. Let the thief no longer steal, that's the prohibition. That's the don't do side. Now we get over here on the, on the other side. Here's the contrast. Here's what it's proactively calling us toward. L let the thief actually get a job and let him get to work and, and let him do honest work with his own hands. Like not just any job, but an honest job. So, so let him start, get an honest job going. Why? So he can actually make money and have something. Now, why is it important that he has something? Why is it important that you have something? Here's the reason. Not so you can keep it all, but so that you can actually begin to share it with other people. That's the positive side of this commandment. It's not a stealing issue. It's a sharing issue. I love how Jerry Bridges takes this passage in Ephesians 4, 28, and he breaks it down into the three ways that people view their possessions, what God has entrusted to them. Here are the three ways that people view these things. Here's the first way he says. It should be on the screen for you. First way goes like this. What's yours is mine, so I'll take it. That's the ethic of the thief, right? That's the clear prohibition. That's the ethic of the thief. What's yours is mine, so I'll just take what's yours then. Okay, that's one way to view things. Here's the second way to view things. What's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. So I've got, I'm not stealing it. But what mine, what's mine is mine, it's, it's mine. So I, I'm, not gonna sh I'm, I'm gonna keep what's mine. Now here's the third way we can view what, what we have been given by God. What's mine is God's, therefore I'll share it. Okay, now hear what I'm about to say. When it comes to breaking the second commandment, or the eighth commandment, all of us see that the first one is thievery. 
all of us see that the eighth commandment is broken in mindset number one. When we have this mindset of what's yours is mine, therefore I'm gonna take what's yours and make it mine, all of us know that's an obvious way of stealing. It's an obvious way of breaking the eighth commandment. The less obvious way of breaking the eighth commandment, but equally grievous to God, is the second way of seeing. What's mine is mine, therefore I'm just gonna keep and hoard what's mine. Now hear me. That is an equally grievous way of breaking the Eighth Commandment. Both mindset one and mindset two is a breaking of the Eighth Commandment. And here's what's humbling and should be sobering for all of us. Mindset number two is the predominant mindset of America. It is how most people think about what they have. It's mine, therefore I'll hoard it, I'll keep it. And what the Eighth Commandment is calling us toward is not a, I'll take from you, not a, what's mine is mine, so I'll keep. What the eighth commandment is calling us toward is a, everything I have is God, therefore I'm gonna share it. See, what, what the eighth commandment is prohibiting is stealing. What the eighth commandment is calling us toward is stewarding being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. So I wanna spend just a few moments thinking with you about stewardship, thinking stewardship through. And let me just start with the definition. What does it mean to be a steward? What is a steward? This is the essence of the eighth commandment. This is what the Lord is pressing us all toward in the eighth commandment. That The eighth commandment is about you stealing, but it's not primarily about you stealing. It's primarily about all of us learning and walking and living in what it means to steward our life, everything that God has given us. So what is a steward? Here's a, a working definition for you. A steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. That's a steward. It's someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing that wealth or property in the owner's best interest. That's what a steward is. Now hear me when I say this. A steward, like stewardship or, or being a steward is not a subcategory of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. This is what we are as a Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be a steward of what Jesus has given you. It's an identity thing. It's what we are. This is, this is how deep the, the river and the current of stewardship goes in our life. So it's important that we get this right. Now, when you're thinking about stewardship, let me just run through the three components of stewardship. This is, this is what supports this word stewardship. It's three basic beliefs. Here are the three basic beliefs, the three pillars underneath stewardship. Number one, God owns it all. This is the first thing about stewardship is we've actually got to believe that God owns it all everything, that there is nothing in your life that you can look at and say, you know who owns that? Me. There's not one thing in your life that you can say that about. Every single thing, money, bank account, uh, house, car, family, kids, spouse, everything, friends, everything in your life, God owns them. You don't own a single one of them. You pick this up very early on in the scriptures. Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. And listen to the implication of God creating everything. The implication of that is God also owns everything. He is owner. And there's not one thing you can look at in this world, in this universe that you could, you, you know, we cannot say God owns that. He owns it all. And the Bible spends a lot of time trying to convince us of this. Let me just run through a few passages that show us this. 
Deuteronomy 10, 14, it'll be on the screen for you. Behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Job 41, 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And isn't it interesting that there's no little exception clauses? It's not, you know, whatever is under the whole of heaven except these things is mine. It's not that. It's all of it is God. That's what he's saying here. Um, Psalm four, uh, 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all mine, the Lord is saying. Everything is his. That's the point. This is what the Bible is trying to convince us of. I love how Abraham Kuyper, a theologian of about a century ago, he said it this way. In the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which the Christ, who, who alone is sovereign, does not declare that is mine. There's not one inch of, of this universe that God looks at and says, oh, that's theirs. That, that's not mine. That, that's theirs. There's not one inch that God says that about. Every square inch God is saying, that is mine. That is mine. That is mine. Everything is mine. That's, that's the point the Lord is making here. Now hear me on this. Even you are his. Even you. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own and you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you're, uh, if you're in Christ, if you're one of, of Jesus's, here's the truth about you. You have been doubly bought. You were bought once in creation and you were bought once in redemption. You are doubly his, doubly his. You, you, you were meant by God to glorify him, to, to live in such a way that you're open-handed before God, knowing that your life is not your own. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. So here's the point. God owns it all. You can tear your Bible apart. You're never gonna find the verse that says, oh, but you own that or you own this. The Bible is really clear. God owns it all. And to be a steward, we have to believe that. We have to believe that there's not one thing in our life that's ours. It all belongs to God. Now here's the second pillar of stewardship. Pillar one, God owns it all. Pillar two, God entrusts what he owns to us. It's not enough just to believe that God owns it all. Secondly, we have to also believe that God actually entrusts what he owns to us, to care for it and to, and to, and to steward it well, that God entrusts that to us. Now you see this in the opening pages of scripture, Genesis 1, God creates everything. By nature of his creating it, he owns it. Genesis 2, he creates Adam and Eve, puts them in a garden. And listen to what the Bible says about this. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Why did he put the man in, in the garden, the man and the woman in the garden? Here's why. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. See, that's stewardship. God, God is saying, I created everything. It's all mine. But here's what I'm about to do now. I'm about to put you in a part of my creation. Adam and Eve, our first parents, I'm gonna put you in this garden and I want you to steward it. I'm going to entrust part of my creation to you. Now, when it comes to thinking about what God entrusts to us, let me just give you three categories to think on here. Just when you're applying this to your own life, what is it that God entrusts to you? You might think of it with three T's. Here's the first one, time. God entrusts you with time. Isn't time a precious gift? 
There's not one of us in here who think right now, you know what I've got more than enough of is time. That's just not true. Time is precious. It is something that God has entrusted to us. So you've got time. You've got um, treasure. That's your money and possessions. Everything you own is God's. Now, can, can you just, can you remind yourself of that right now? Your house is God's. Every dollar you earn, it is not yours to do with, you, you know, whatever you want with. It is God's. Your car is God's. Your family is God's. Everything, every money, everything that you have in your possession, just remind yourself right now, that's all God's. It's not mine. It's all God's. All of the treasure he gives us, it's God's. And then you've got talents, time, treasure, and talents. Talents are a way of talking about our giftedness, the unique opportunities that God gives us. Those are things that God entrusts to us. You did not, before you were born, you did not fill out a pre-birth checklist on, I want that gift, I want that unique thing, I want this. That's not how it worked. God uniquely designed you. You didn't get a say in that. Everything that you have, God has blessed you with. If you're like business savvy guy, God bless you with that. If you've learned and acquired the ability to make a buck in this world, God has blessed you with a brain to do that. If you're a charismatic sort of a guy, God has given you that. There's not one thing you can point to in your life and makeup that God has not gifted you with that ability, with those unique giftings. Now, I want to just linger over this just for a second because I... The longer I'm around people, the more I am like discovering that most people are not very content with how the Lord made them. They always wanna be someone else. They wanna have their gifts. They wanna have their talents. They wanna have, the grass is always greener in that person's shoes. And I, I wanna linger over this for a minute. And can you just hear the voice of God just this morning? If you're in Christ, can you hear the voice of God just whisper this to you? Can you just hear God telling you, I have made you uniquely. I have uniquely designed you. Not to be that person, but to be you. I've uniquely designed you for that. So, so live in that. Enjoy my unique design for you. Now, now fathers, I, I want to take a minute to address you just for a moment. One of the unique privileges and roles that fathers get to play in their families is to help their sons and daughters learn their unique giftings by God. To, to learn that, that although they are very similar to the person sitting beside them, I mean, there's a lot of things we could look at because they're both human beings and say, yes, y'all are very similar. At the same time, there are unique differences that God has designed them with. And they don't have to be that person. They get to be the person God's created them to be. They don't have to go down that path because everyone else is going down that path. They get to go down this path because God has created this for them. You get the unique role and privilege of being that voice, of calling those things out and helping them grow in the awareness of who it is that God has made them to be and celebrating that. Helping them grow in the sense of, that's not a bad thing, that's a great thing. That God has made me this way and the world needs this gifting. The world needs these sort of people that I am. Father, you've got a unique role to play in that. So, so these are the things that God, God entrusts to us. Time, talent, treasure. Those are all unique giftings from God. Unique ways that God has entrusted part of his creation to us. Now here's the third pillar of what it means to be a steward. First pillar is God owns it all. Second one is that God entrusts what he owns to us. And here's the third one. 
that God charges us to use what he has entrusted to us for his interest. Not just our interest, but for his interest. See, the, the, the ethic of what's mine is mine, therefore I'm going to hoard it, is, is a sinful ethic. It is a breaking of the eighth commandment. The eighth commandment is leading us to the ethic that said, everything that I own is God's. God has entrusted something to me. Therefore, I'm going to use what he has entrusted to me for his purposes, his agendas in the world. That's what I'm going to use it for. Now, you see this in, uh, in Genesis 2. God creates everything. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He's entrusting part of that garden to them. And then he says, do this, work it and keep it. Working and keeping the garden is not, is not playing it safe. It's not just protecting it to make sure nothing happens to it. Working and keeping the garden for, for our first parents is actually taking part of God's creation that God's entrusted to them and now using it, cultivating it, developing it to bring something good out of it. Now that's what it means to be a steward. God owns it all. God's entrusted things to me and I'm using now what God has entrusted to me and I'm developing things with it. I'm cultivating things with it. I'm using what he has entrusted to me to extend and to be a part of his purposes in the world. Does that make sense? You see that, that idea of stewardship there? God owns it. God entrusts things to me and now I'm using it for Jesus' sake. That's what it means to be a steward. Now, do you see your life that way? Do you see everything that you have in your life, your giftings, your money, your time, all of your, all the stuff that's yours right now. Do you see that as God's and that God has entrusted it to you to use for, for Jesus' sake? That This is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. Okay, now I want to take just a few minutes and apply it. I want to spend just a few moments thinking through how, how do we apply the eighth commandment? And I want to just work through two questions here to apply it. Here's the first question. And we're going to work on the negative side of the commandment first, the prohibition. Don't, don't do this, that side of it. Is there unaddressed theft in your life? Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Is there anywhere in your life where there is unaddressed theft? Okay, can we all do this together? Can we all just right now ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to show us what we need to see right now in this moment? And I want to invite you to close your eyes for just a moment. And just think, I'm going to say some words. And as I say these words, just ask this for the Spirit if there's something there to, to prick your conscience and to show you that there's something there. Tax theft. Credit card theft. Borrowing theft. Welfare theft. Employee theft. Management theft. Revenge theft. Insurance theft, sales theft, reputation theft, just slander and gossip, ruining a person's name, intellectual theft, glory theft, and if that's you, if if the Holy Spirit is, is just convicting, just that little small voice saying, that is an issue right there. The question is, what do you do about that? You can look up here and here's what you do about that. Right now, you confess it to the Lord. Before you leave today, you confess it to someone else and you repent of that. You make a break, you turn from that and you throw your life back upon Jesus and listen to the last part. You actually go and make restitution for it. 
If you have stolen something from someone, today is like the day where that needs to get paid back. If you've stolen from your place of employment, you need to give them hours that you've stolen. If you've stolen something else, you need to think and figure out and and seek the Lord on what does it mean to actually go about repaying what you have stolen. Now, here's the second question. First question, is there any unaddressed theft in your life? Second question is, are you stewarding what God's given you? Are you stewarding what God has given you? I mean, just ask the Lord for, for clarity here. Am I being a good steward? Now, now, hear what I'm about to say. Doing nothing with what God has entrusted to you is called sin in the Bible. Doing nothing with what God has given you is not just called a lack of stewardship, it's called sin. God is not okay with doing nothing with what he's entrusted to you. So we need to be really diligent in thinking about these things. Am I taking what God has given me and entrusted to me and using it for Jesus' sake? Am I doing that? Now just think through the grid here. Let's just start with with your money and possessions, your treasure. Are are you doing something good with that? Are are you sharing that? I mean, Malachi is really clear. The, The Lord is really clear that there is a way of stealing from God with a lack of stewardship. I mean, when Malachi in you know, chapter three, verse eight talks about this, the Lord puts it in these terms. He says this, will, you, will man rob God? Are you really gonna be about robbing me? And then it goes on. The Lord says, you are robbing me. That's the problem. You are doing that. Then he anticipates the objection. But, but Lord, how are we robbing you? How, how are we stealing from you? And the Lord clarifies it like this. He says, um, by, by your tithes and offerings by lack of sacrificial generosity in your life. And listen, this is not like a, let's get into the details of, is the tithe still applicable and all. I'm just saying this, the, the Bible is clear that with a lack of sacrificial generosity, you can rob God. And it is very, it, and I'm just gonna go one more step further and say, and I think a lot of us are doing that and we're not thinking of it that way. But a lack of sacrificial generosity is that. So just look at your life. Is is there a sacrificialness to the way that you give, the way that you share with other people? And if you want a grid, I think this is a helpful grid just to kind of maybe run this through. When it comes to to the money that God's entrusted you, I think God would tell you that you've got a family that you need to care for and, and provide for. Now that doesn't mean you meet every single need that could ever be imaginable for your family. It means that you take care of the basic necessities for your family. Then after you get inner's family here, you get your church family and you make sure that no one's in need in your church family. And then after that, you go to the, to the needs of people at large, the mission of Jesus outside your church family. That that's the general grid work that I think you can work through when you're thinking about how generosity should flow in your life. So are you generous? We're at month six of the year. So this is a really good time to just take a check for 2015. Looking back at the first six months of 2015, would you say that there has been a sacrificial generosity to your life? If not, this is a great day to get back on track with that, to to turn from that and to get back into the sort of life that God would be calling you to live. So, So that's your money. Think about your time. How would you view your time in this? Again, everyone in here, when it comes to time, we're all pressed for time. There's no one in here that's like, man, I've just got more time than I know what to do with. None of us fit that bill. Time is so precious. Weeks, months just go by that fast. And most, and I think it's fair to say that all of us have a sense, a deep sense in us of what Paul tells us to do in, in Ephesians 5 of redeeming the time. We all want to redeem the time. We know it's that precious. We want to take advantage of it. But listen, the how of redeeming the time is counterintuitive. 
Most people think that if I'm gonna redeem the time, really make the most of it, you know how I'm gonna do that? I'm gonna do that by grabbing time and hoarding it, keeping it for myself. And if you grab time and try to hoard it, you are ensuring that you will waste your life. The only way to redeem time is by opening up your hands and by giving it to Jesus. It's by giving it to your family, like actually turning off the TV and paying attention to someone. By actually turning off the TV and paying attention to your neighbors, paying attention to those who need your attention in your life. That's the only way to redeem time is by giving time to Jesus and to Jesus' sake. That is the only way to redeem it. So, so are you redeeming the time? Are you using it for the things that would be most beneficial in your life? And, and take your talents, the things that God has gifted you with. Are you taking your talents and using those for the good of your family, for, for the good of your church family, by serving in your church, but by stirring one another up to love and good deeds? Are you using your, your talents that, in that way? And by the world at large, kind of Jesus' mission outside of your church? Does that describe you? Are you serving somewhere? Are you pouring your life out in the, the unique way that God has gifted you for the good of other people? Are, are you stewarding your life? I mean, one of the things that's been so encouraging to me over six years, we're almost six years old as a church family. And it has been so encouraging to watch this play out in people's lives. People who are so willing to give their time. There's a group of people that got up really early this morning so that you could enjoy this to watch people serve and use their giftedness to serve our church family. We would not be where we are today without the sacrificial generosity of a lot of people. Right now, we are experiencing the fruit of many people's sacrificial generosity. And I wanna encourage you, if you're not in on those things, jump into those things. God has good things for you down that road. Jump in. If you're not there, this is a great time to repent and to get there to ask God for transforming grace that would change you into this sort of a person. Now, I wanna finish by um, talking about the motive of the command. How does the Bible motivate living in this sort of a way? You know, all the commandments, they, they push me to the point of like, man, how is this possible? How is this sort of life, how is this sort of living possible? Every one of the commandments take me to that point. And, and here's how the Bible talks about how is that possible. Number one, it takes a regenerate person. It takes God actually saving us and changing our heart. That's the first thing it requires. But if that's happened for you, the only way we will ever begin to live more and more in the eighth commandment is by God continually redeeming and refreshing and changing us. That's our only hope is for God to do that. And the question becomes, how does God do that? How does God continually change us into the image of Jesus? And here's, here's the way that happens. It's by asking this last and final question of the eighth commandment. It's by asking the question, what does this command tell us about God? This is the way that we can have our hearts changed and refreshed and made even more today into the image of Jesus. It's the way that our hardness that still, re, you know, still lies in us can be melted inside of us. It's to consider the question, what does it teach us about Jesus? How would you answer that, by the way? What does it teach us about Jesus? The God who's created all things, who created the universe, who knows how the universe should work, who has also said, here's a law of the universe, that the law in this universe is don't steal, Rather be a good steward with everything that I entrust to you. What, what does this tell us about God? And here would be my answer to that question. It reveals this about God. It tells us that God is abundantly generous. Okay, now I want you to look at me in the eye here. Did you know that you have never met a person more generous than God? You have never bumped into any human being that is as generous as God is to you. 
that is willing to give of the most precious things to you. You've never met a person more generous than God. His generosity plays out in the fact that God is a giver. He is a giver. I love how C.S. Lewis describes this. He says, God loves not because, he is, because we're lovable. That's not the reason God loves us. He loves because he is love. He goes on to say, God loves us not because he needs to receive something from us. God loves because he delights to give. That is the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is there is a God who stands behind it that loves to give, not take who loves to open up his hand and allow precious gifts to flow to us. He's not a stingy God. He's not a grouchy God. He is a generous God. It's the sort of God who would look at us in our rebellion, in our sin, in our law-breaking, in our thievery, and say, you know what I'll do for you? I'll send my beloved son to you, John 3, 16. I'll send my beloved son, why? So that if you believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll live with me forever. That's how generous I'll be with you. I'll send my beloved son who will live perfectly in your place. He will be the one person who is never stolen, who could never be charged of thievery. He'll be that one person. And that one person, Jesus, my beloved son, will also crawl up on a cross. Where You know what's interesting? Who was Jesus crucified between? Two thieves. Isn't that interesting? That, that, that God Almighty in his generosity would say, I'll take my perfect beloved son and not only will he live perfectly for you, but I'll place him on a cross, nail him on a cross and he will be counted among the thieves. And not just be accounted among the thieves, he will actually become a thief on your behalf. I, I will actually put your sin on him and make him into a thief. So that from now until the rest of eternity, when I look at you, I will never see your thievery again. For all those who put their faith in this Jesus, I will never count your thievery against you. That is the sort of crazy generosity of God. That is the abundance of his generosity. And Paul plays this out, teases this out even further in Romans 8.32, where he says, if God would not spare his own son, but give him up for us all, how much more will he give us all things? If we've got a God who would give us the most precious things, how, how much more could we be confident in the generosity toward our everyday needs in our life? This is the a generous, abundantly generous heart of God. You've never met a person more generous than God is. Never. And here's the thing. That generosity can change you. When you see that and you receive that, that generosity can change your life forever. Let, let me close with an illustration from the... the um, from Les Mis. Anybody seen Les Mis? Yeah. Some of us need a little more cu culture in the room, right? <laughs> if you need a little bit, you can go rent the movie, 2012 version. Uh, Russell Crowe, Hugh Jackman, go for it. But if you know the storyline of Les Mis, he here's the, the basic storyline. Uh, John Valjean, he steals a piece of bread. He's hungry, People need food, so he steals a piece of bread. He is sent to basically prison for 19 years. He gets out and uh, he breaks parole. Then he's desperate. He's broke. He's scared, doesn't know what to do. And then he bumps into a bishop. And the bishop brings him into his house, allows him to stay in his house that night, gives him a warm bed to sleep on, feeds him, just is very generous toward uh, Jean. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he is about to return to his thieving ways. So he wakes up and decides, I'm going to steal and I'm going to make a run for it. So he grabs some of the silver in the bishop's house and he leaves. The next morning, the police catch him, bring him back to the bishop's house. 
And the police said, here he is. He's caught red-handed with your silver. Here's the stuff that he's stolen from you. And the bishop comes over and says, "But, but he didn't steal that from me. These are all things that I have given him. And you know what's crazy? That the bishop looks at the police officer and says, he left the best things. I actually gave him these incredible candlesticks. It's the most, you know, one of the most valuable things in the house. I actually gave him these candlesticks and he ran off and, and forgot the candlesticks. So he throws the candlesticks over in his bag. Now, when Victor Hugo is writing this, listen to how this little scene plays out. This is in this moment of him giving him the other candlesticks, all, all this is happening. He says, my friend, says the bishop, before you go away, here are your candlesticks, take them. uh, He went to the mantelpiece, took the two candlesticks and handed them to Jean. Jean was trembling all over. He took the two candlesticks distractedly with a bewildered expression. Now, said the bishop, now you can go in peace. By the way, the bishop says, my friend, whenever you come again, this is the person who's just stolen from me. Whenever you come again, you need not come through the garden." You need not come through the garden. You can always come and go by the front door. It's only closed with a latch day or night. So now after the police go away, here's what he, he sits down and he talks to Jean Valjean. And here's what he says to him. He says, John, don't you ever forget that you promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean, who had no recollection of any such promise, stood dumbfounded. The bishop had stressed these words as he spoke them. He said, he continued solemnly, John, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul I am buying for you. I withdraw it from the dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Now, if you know how the storyline of the rest of the movie goes, you know that this one incredible act of generosity, him seeing this moment of generosity and receiving it changed his life forever. And he then became a man of unbelievable generosity. So as the story goes out, he saves a woman out of prostitution, saves her little daughter out of basically, you know, slavery. He goes on to help a man who almost got run over, find a job. His whole life now is built around being an incredible force for good. And you know where that all started? By seeing and receiving this generosity from this bishop. Now let's just tie it up with this and we're done. How much more us when we see and receive the unspeakable generosity of God sending his beloved son for us. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a few moments there where you are to allow the spirit of God to speak and to press down the things that would be most helpful and You know, every time I I come on a Sunday morning and I'm driving together with our church family here, I am praying and asking God and expecting for miracles to happen. Miracles in this room among this group of people. And for some of us, that miracle is happening this morning. That you are seeing for the first time that you are a lawbreaker that you may be a hair better than your neighbor down the street, but in the court of God's justice, God is going to look at you as a lawbreaker and thief. There's not one human being in the court of God's justice that can look at the eighth commandment and say, God, I stand guiltless. We're all guilty of breaking it. 
And what the eighth commandment along with the rest of the commandments are are trying to show us is that yes, we're all lawbreakers and yes, we all need the perfect righteousness of Jesus if we're ever going to stand right before God. And for some of us, God is convincing you of that this morning. And, And listen, God this morning is... He is so ready and so willing to apply the perfect record of Jesus to your account. I love how one of my friends defines the gospel. He says, here's what the good news of Jesus is. We're all idiots. We might could add this morning, we're law-breaking and thieving idiots. And we all have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. It's the great news of Jesus. And here's the wonderful part. And anyone can get in on this. I can't, here's the deal that, Jesus, er, er, that God is willing to make with us this morning. God this morning is looking at us and he's saying, here's the deal I'll make. Please give me all of your thievery. Give me all of your law. Just open up your hands and give me that. I'll take your thievery and I'll give that to Jesus. And then I'll take the perfect record of righteousness that is Jesus. I'll take that from him and I will give you that perfect record of righteousness. And Jesus is, how about we make that deal? God is saying, would you take that deal this morning? I'll take all of your thieving. I'll take all of your commandment breaking. I'll put that on Jesus. And all that Jesus is, his perfect record of right, I'll give all of that to you. And what becoming a son or daughter of God means is that we open up our hands and we give him our sin and we throw our life upon Jesus. We come to Jesus in faith, throwing our life upon him. And in that moment, God Almighty rescues us from our sin. And from that point forward, we can be confident that from here to all eternity, we're no longer seen in light of our sin. We're seen in light of the perfect record of Jesus. And if that's you this morning, if that miracle is happening in you, we want to know about that. Let let our guys at the prayer table know and celebrate that with you. And we'd love to pray for you this morning and be able to walk with you this morning. And for the rest of us in the room, This commandment is inviting us, God, through this commandment is inviting us this morning to repent of our thieving. Places that we've stolen, places that where where we have failed to steward, to repent of that, to make restitution if we've stolen something, where we're we're lacking good stewardship, to repent and to actually pray for for grace that would transform us into a good steward, that, that we would make a plan for our stewardship. So Father, would you please do that in this room right now? God, help us. We need your help to live in this. God, melt our heart with your incredible generosity toward us. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.